excited uh, for us to continue in our sermon series here in the Gospel of John, looking at conversations uh, that Jesus had with various people uh, throughout this Gospel. Uh, Today we come to the second to last chapter in the Gospel of John, and next week uh, we're going to be in the last chapter of the Gospel of John. And I think it's a fitting conclusion to this Gospel uh, that they end with these two conversations um, as kind of the highlights of the book. John 20, um, we see uh, the, the call and the struggle to believe uh, as Jesus interacts with the disciples and particularly with Thomas. And then in John 21, we see Jesus as He restores Peter and that, uh, that conversation and interaction that Jesus has with Peter. And we see the call and the struggle of following Jesus. You see, the Gospel of John, if you summed it up, is about helping us believe and in believing in Jesus that we might follow Him faithfully. Now, that's what the Gospel of John and all of the Gospels are helping us do, to understand who Jesus is and to understand what it means to follow Him. And so uh, over the next two weeks, as we look at John chapter 20 and John 21, uh, in many ways we're really summing up the Gospel as a whole. Uh, and today we come uh, to John 20 and particularly Jesus' conversation with His disciples uh, with a highlight uh, of Jesus interacting with Thomas. Uh, We're going to talk about doubt and how Jesus interacts with with those who doubt. And and when we hear uh, that that, uh, idea of doubt, I think particularly as I'm speaking in a church setting, sometimes we think first of doubt that happens for those who don't believe. Uh, the, The doubts that they have about the veracity, the truthfulness, the reliability of what Christianity teaches or what the Bible says. And that's certainly true, and we're, we're going to look at that. But Thomas wouldn't exactly fall into that category. Thomas would fall into the category of a person who's been with Jesus pretty much every day for the last three years at this point in the Gospel of John. Uh, and, and up until Good Friday, uh, he was thinking Jesus is on the way to the throne. Uh, and, and so Jesus is interacting with, with one of his disciples. We, we call him Doubting Thomas. Uh, that's the rap that he's gotten. Uh, And in some ways, it's unfair uh, because, in fact, we looked uh, a few weeks ago in John chapter 11 when when Jesus was going to to raise Lazarus from the dead and and he was in Bethany and going to uh, going towards Jerusalem. Everyone knew that the animosity and the opposition between Jesus and the religious leaders at this time, uh, everyone knew for Jesus to go to Jerusalem was basically for Jesus to go towards his death. And and we saw that. Uh, in many ways, the, the good news of the gospel and Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead, in order to uh, raise Lazarus from the dead, Jesus had to bring about his own funeral, his own death on the cross. And, uh, and as he raised Lazarus from the dead, it was a, uh, a foretaste of what Jesus was going to do on the third day when he rose from the dead. And, uh, and as he gets ready to go, uh, everyone's kind of uh, quietly, the disciples are kind of quietly discussing what's about to happen Uh, as they get ready to go towards Jerusalem, and it's Thomas who speaks up and he says, let's go and die with him. Thomas Thomas wasn't wasn't just a you know an Eeyore on the on the disciples team. He wasn't just always the the one who was kind of just kind of doubting and uh, and unsure of things. There was a certain type of loyalty that we see expressed in Thomas already in the Gospel of John, but we come here and we see him wrestling with doubt as to what really happened on Easter Sunday. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? And we're going to see how Jesus interacts with him. And in doing so, uh, I want to be able to encourage every one of us here today, as as a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, uh, I want us to, to be able to learn how to wrestle with our doubts well. Uh, you know, I think sometimes depending on your church background and kind of how you were, uh, perhaps if you were raised in church or what your experience has been like in church, I think sometimes um, we, can, we can treat doubt as like this ugly thing and this shameful thing that we don't discuss. And therefore, if you have doubts, the best thing to do is to keep them to yourself and maybe Google them on the weekends, you know, see if you can get answers for them. Um, just kidding. That's not the best way to do it. But that's, that's kind of, we, we kind of put it in the shame box. Like if you have doubts, you're a bad Christian. Uh, or sometimes there's there's kind of a spirit uh, in our in our world today that's like doubt everything, don't believe anything, be an agnostic about everything. That that's kind of a, a hardcore about doubting. Uh, and what we're going to see as Jesus interacts with Thomas is we're going to see uh, that Jesus doesn't shame Thomas. 
uh, for his doubt. He draws it near to him in his doubt. He actually gives evidence for our faith, for our belief, and calls us to believe that we can have true belief. We live in an age uh, of wanting to know the truth. Uh, and <clears throat> though uh, many people will, will say, unless I can know it, Everything, 100%, I won't believe anything. And, and the reality about believing is we may not be able to know everything exhaustively because we're finite human beings, but we can know something truly. And we can know the truth of who Jesus is, the truth about His death on the cross, the truth about His resurrection from the dead and what it means to follow Him. And, uh, and, and, and I also want to say, perhaps if, if you're here and, and you don't believe or you're not sure what you believe, uh, as you think about doubts, I think sometimes uh, one of the things that can happen in, uh, in Christian circles is, uh, is, is there's this tendency uh, to, uh, to maybe not take people's questions seriously. Or, or sometimes as Christians, even when we're talking with friends, we can be afraid of a person's questions because we may not feel like we have all the answers. And so we can shy away from that. And, uh, and I, I want to be able to to invite you in, uh, that this is a church where you don't have to hide in shame with doubt. Uh, we're a church that doesn't believe um, that you have to uh, just walk around with hardcore skepticism. We believe we can know what's true and we can know it truly. And God has revealed it to us in His Word and in the person of Jesus. And we're going to see how Jesus interacts with Thomas as a doubter and in doing so invites us to wrestle with our doubts and to believe. The same call that Jesus gives to Thomas is the call that He gives to us today. Don't go on disbelieving, but believe. And we're going to see uh, how all of that unfolds and be encouraged in dealing with our own doubt. Uh, and, and just perhaps as a word of encouragement to all of us, in Jude um, verse 22, uh, a book that only has one chapter, uh, so the 22nd uh, verse in Jude we see this call to show mercy on those who doubt. Uh, and so as we approach this today, uh, whether a believer doubting or an unbeliever doubting, uh, we, we take the words um, <clears throat> from Jude seriously to, uh, to approach this topic with a, with a great sense uh, of compassion, with a great sense of mercy, with a great desire to look to Jesus and to understand how to deal with our doubt. And so um, we heard we heard read verses 24 through 32, but I want us to begin actually uh, by going to the previous conversation because it sheds light uh, on the conversation that Jesus has with Thomas. Starting in verse 19, I want us to look at Jesus and the disciples. You see, this is uh, John chapter 20, the, the announcement and the, uh, the resurrection is taking place in John 20 as Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb on Easter Sunday morning and finds the tomb empty and, and go, is told to go and tell the disciples that Jesus has been risen, has been raised from the dead. And, and then there's this interaction between John and Peter as they run to the tomb. Uh, just a, one of my favorite passages because it says the two disciples are running, uh, Peter and John, and, uh, and it says the, the disciple that Jesus loves uh, outruns Peter. Uh, so there's a little, uh, little dig at Peter here. Apparently, uh, John is faster than Peter. He gets to the tomb first, uh, but Peter is uh, the first one to actually stick his head and go into the tomb and discover uh, that Jesus' body is not there. His clothes that he was wrapped in were, were laid uh, on the place where he was laying. His uh, the cloth that covered his face was laying there, and Jesus is risen from the dead. And it's the good news of Easter, and it's the good news of Christianity. It's what changes everything, that Jesus is alive, that he's raised from the dead. And then we begin to see Jesus appearing uh, to various disciples in the days that follow. And Jesus was with his disciples, appearing at various points for 40 days before he ascended into heaven. Um, and then we see the coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So this is falling uh, on Easter Sunday morning uh, and, and going into the day. Jesus first appears uh, here in John 20 to Mary Magdalene, and, uh, and, and we see uh, how he uh, reveals himself, and it's just speaking her name that she recognizes that it's Jesus, and she goes and tells um, everyone what she had seen, and Jesus tells her that he's ascending to his Father, to my God, to your God, uh, Mary Magdalene, it says in verse 18, went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. And then starting in verse 19, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, 
The doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them. I love um, as we see these appearances go throughout, uh, we, we see that Jesus' resurrected body uh, is, is unlike uh, his, uh, his body before the resurrection. He um, uh, is able to appear in a locked room where the disciples are. Uh, you can understand why they were a little freaked out. And Jesus has to begin with, peace be with you. Uh, Do not fear, he says at the end of verse 19. And when he had said this, he showed the disciples his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And so we see in this first interaction how Jesus appears to his disciples, and it's a glorious, joyous occasion when they realize that the one standing before them is the one that they saw hanging on the cross and laid in the tomb was the same Jesus that was raised from the dead. His resurrected body was gloriously different uh, than his pre-resurrection body, but it was uh, entirely the same person. It's this foretaste and foreshadowing of what one day our resurrection bodies will be when 1 Corinthians 15 says that we'll be changed uh, in the twinkling of an eye and uh, take on new resurrection bodies following in the footsteps of Jesus. Jesus defeats death is risen from the dead and appears to His disciples. It's an understatement in many ways, perhaps when, it's, when you read in verse 20, that the disciples were glad, that they were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. You see the, the background up to this point as we think about what Jesus did on the cross and in His resurrection. We, we really, I heard it put this way that uh, this week as I was preparing that really struck me. In the Bible... Either death is Lord or Jesus is Lord. You think about that. In the end, death finds us all. We said that last week. I don't mean to keep beating a solemn drumbeat, perhaps, but one that we all do well to remember. Death is Lord or Jesus is Lord. See, death finds us all. There's nothing we can do to stop it. There's nothing we can do to, in the end, change it. But if Jesus is risen from the dead, then death isn't Lord. Death doesn't have the last say. Jesus defeats death and and its cause, sin. When He died on the cross, He paid the penalty for our sin. And then He laid in the tomb and He paid the price for our sin and defeated death and is risen from the dead and He appears to His disciples and this changes everything. And we soon see that as Jesus appears to His disciples and makes Himself known to them, reveals to Him that it's really Him risen from the dead, He sends His disciples on mission. The first thing He says in verse 21, think about that. The first thing the resurrected Lord says as He appears to His disciples, after He says, peace be with you, don't freak out, it's really Me. The first thing He says is, you're sent. Just as the Father sent Me, uh, look there in verse 21, Even so, I am sending you. He sends His disciples. They're sent with the very same authority that Jesus has. He says, just as the Father sent me, even so, I am sending you. Jesus doesn't give the disciples a new mission, but He he tells them that they're continuing in His mission. The work that He came to do, they continue that work. In fact, in Matthew 28, a passage known as the Great Commission, before Jesus basically says the same thing, this is the John version of the Great Commission, when he says, go and make disciples of all nations, he begins with all authority in heaven on earth have been given to me. The, the point of Jesus seeing, saying, just as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you, is to, is to say that the disciples are sent on mission, continuing the mission of Jesus with the authority of Jesus. They go not not on their own authority, not because they have something in themselves to offer, but because Jesus is risen from the dead and He has invited them and called them to go. They've been sent. And we see how it goes on and it says in verse 22, when He had said this, He breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. And if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven of them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. See, Jesus not only sends His disciples, but here in this uh, interaction, we see that Jesus empowers His disciples with His Spirit. This is somewhat of a uh, kind of a preview, a foretaste, if you will, of what's going to happen at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost and 
and, and all who are gathered from all the nations as they're standing in the temple court and Peter proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, that He died on the cross for their sins and rose from the dead and that everyone's to repent and be baptized and follow Jesus and says that as they spoke, everyone heard the message of the Gospel in their own language. The power of the Spirit comes and the people hear the message of the Gospel and respond and, uh, and many thousands were, were, were converted and trusted in Christ and were added to the church and and what you see when Jesus sends his disciples is the mission that he gives them cannot be done in their own strength it requires the Holy Spirit it requires the empowering of the Holy Spirit the people of God cannot carry out the mission of God apart from the Spirit of God these things go together and we see it in all of the, the commissioning passages at the end of the Gospel is that the Spirit is to come. And when the Spirit comes, you will go and be My witnesses. You will be sent. And so He's, he's telling them that the mission uh, requires the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Everyone who uh, ultimately trusts in Christ will receive the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is what assures us of our faith, testifies to us of the love of God for us, reminds us of our sin, convicts us of sin and righteousness and judgment that's to come, leads us into the truth, strengthens us for obedience. It's the Spirit of God that enables us to walk faithfully as followers of Christ as well as to make known Christ to the nations, to the world, to our community, to our neighbors, to our coworkers. And so Jesus is telling them they've been sent, and in order to carry out that mission, they need the Holy Spirit, but then He also entrusts to them His message. It's kind of an interesting statement, and it's one that can be a little confusing. You look at verse 23 again, it says, If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven, but if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Kind of sounds like we can pick and choose who gets to be forgiven if you read it uh, in, a, on a, in a certain way. But the point actually that I think Jesus is making continually when he talks about this, this binding and loosing uh, in the Gospels, is what he's saying is, is not so much about the disciples picking and choosing who is forgiven, but the emphasis is on the message of the Gospel, the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. And anyone who receives that message will be forgiven, and anyone who, is, who does not receive that message will not be forgiven. And in fact, the way in which that, uh, f- that faith in Christ and, and trusting in this message of the gospel was then to be expressed was through baptism. And so there's this responsibility that only those who have professed faith in Christ should uh, be baptized. Those who haven't shouldn't. And so what he's really calling them to do here is not pick and choose who gets to be forgiven, but proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. And do you know that's exactly what the disciples do? When Peter stands up in Acts 2, he says, there's forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 24, and verses 44 through 46, Jesus says to his disciples, you're to go and be my witnesses. Bear witness to this message that there's forgiveness of sins through Christ. So Jesus sends his disciples, empowers them with his spirit, and entrusts his message to his disciples. Now, <clears throat> the 12 disciples have a unique role in the history of the church. They have a unique role in God's plan. Ephesians 2:20 tells us that the apostles, which would have been the, these 10 and and then Thomas would be 11 and then because of Judas betraying Jesus and ultimately killing himself, they will add Matthias to the fold to be one of the 12 in Acts uh, chapter 1 and 2. These apostles are the foundation of the church, Ephesians 2.20 tells us. That they, they are foundational to the church and that they bear witness the, the, the apostolic testimony um, regarding Jesus is the, is the foundation of the church. Their role is significant not only because they taught about Jesus, but because they were eyewitnesses of His life and His ministry and ultimately His death as well as His resurrection. And they have this significant role to play in the life of the church. And, and so Jesus is commissioning them in that regard. And yet at the same time, because they are the foundation of the church, all those who trust in Christ share in the same mission. We don't, uh, we don't have the foundational role that the apostles have in the church, but we share in the same mission with them. Just as the Father sent the Son, so we have been sent 
by faith in Christ and empowered by the Holy Spirit to bear witness to the message of forgiveness of sins. So what, what Jesus is saying here in John 20 to His disciples and by extension to us is that Jesus sends us on mission and the power of the Spirit with the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. So this is, this is what, what it's all about. As Jesus is raised from the dead, what He gets up out of the grave talking about is there's a mission that can only be fulfilled by the power of the Spirit, and it, bears, it calls us to bear witness to this message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. Now I begin here not only because it literally precedes our passage on Thomas, but because Thomas has a role to play in all of this. But he, he wasn't there. I don't know if you've ever missed out on a cool experience. Maybe, uh, maybe you were waiting around uh, at a game one time and you got bored and you decided to leave early and then it's like bottom of the ninth, you know, two outs and it's a grand slam or, you know, maybe, uh, maybe you were hoping to see a celebrity after a concert and uh, you didn't get there in time so you missed out on seeing them. I don't know why uh, Thomas wasn't there when Jesus appeared, uh, but nonetheless, he wasn't there. And it says in verse 24 that Thomas, is one of the twelve, <clears throat> called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. But his friends, think about this, his friends who were with him for three years, almost every day, with Jesus. These are the same people that he encouraged in John chapter 11. He said, hey, let's go to Jerusalem and die with Jesus. Let's follow him even if we have to die. So this is Thomas with his friends. His friends were telling him, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. Even Mary Magdalene had told the other disciples, hey, Jesus is risen from the dead. He was hearing this. But it says in, in verse 25, he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. It's a pretty strong statement. The way it's stated is a double emphatic. I will never believe. <clears throat> and so on the heels of Jesus sending His disciples in the power of the Spirit with the message of forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ, here we have Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Struggling to really wrap his mind around the fact that Jesus was raised from the dead. <clears throat> and so we see that Thomas doesn't believe the testimony of his fellow disciples. The, when it says that they were telling him, the, the implication from the language uh, is that they were doing this repeatedly. It wasn't like they were like, oh, hey, Thomas, by the way, Jesus rose from the dead. You know, hey, let's go fishing. They were like, Thomas, no, really. Like we saw him. He showed up and he showed us his hands and we saw his side. It was really him. We thought it was all over on Friday, but he really rose from the dead. And, and you can imagine the, the joy, just like it says in verse uh, 20, that they were glad when they saw Jesus. They must have bust into the room uh, with Thomas and said, Thomas, you wouldn't have believed it. He's alive. And Thomas is like, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I believe it. I, I don't think Thomas doesn't believe because he's a stone-cold atheist, right? Like I don't think that's Thomas's deal. I, I think what we see repeatedly in the disciples the reason that they were in a locked room scared of the jews is because they hadn't fully wrapped their mind around the fact that jesus was really going to rise from the dead you know when you think about it jesus had told them hey i'm going to go to jerusalem one of you is going to betray me and there's even going to be a rooster who crows three times before you deny me peter and then i'm going to be crucified and then i'm going to be put in a tomb but on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. In the Gospel of, uh, of Mark, it says that he told them this three times. What we take away from that is that Jesus probably talked about this with his disciples regularly. And you would have thought, like, okay, here we are. Judas betrays Jesus. Okay, hey, it's just like he said. It's all going down, just like he said. And then he's crucified. Okay, he said that too. Okay, they put him in a tomb. And then when Mary must have run to them and said, hey, Jesus is alive, you would have thought all the disciples would have been like, hey, it's just like he said. But they weren't. They didn't. They didn't wrap their minds around it. They, they, it's like they didn't even see it coming almost. And I think the point of why this is important before we dog on Thomas not believing, I think the Gospels show us that the, the eyewitnesses of the resurrection weren't just naive, gullible people. 
It, you know, we have this kind of chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis has said, where we look back on people in the past and we go, oh, they were, so, they were simpletons. They were, so, they were so naive and gullible. They would have believed anything, you know? Uh, <clears throat> what we see in the, in the Gospels is that that's not the case at all. Thomas wasn't gullible or naive. In fact, he was determined not to be naive. He was determined not to be snookered into believing something that wasn't true. He wanted to see for himself. In fact, he wanted the same treatment that the disciples got, the other ten. It, it struck me this week, you know, as I was thinking about this, when, G, when Thomas says in, in verse uh, 25, when he says, I won't believe unless I, I see his hands, the marks in his hands, the, the nails in his hands, and the, the pierced side of, of Jesus. I won't believe unless I see those things. And we think, wow, Thomas is like raising the bar on what he requires for proof. But, but it says when Jesus appears in verse 20 to the rest of the disciples, He willingly showed them His hands and His side. So Peter, what Thomas is saying is, I, I want to see what you saw. I want to see it for myself. And until I do, I won't believe. And what we see is Jesus, <clears throat> having first appeared to His disciples, now appears to Thomas, is, is that Jesus meets Thomas in his doubt. He meets him in his doubt. It says in verse 26, eight days later, His disciples were inside again, probably telling us that they still were a little scared. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And from what I can tell, this appearance was only for one person. Jesus came this second time to His disciples for one reason, and it was Thomas. Thomas wasn't there when Jesus first appeared to the first ten disciples. Jesus wasn't there when Thomas told the disciples, I won't believe unless I see His hands and His side. But Jesus knew. Just like Jesus knew that Nathaniel was under the tree before Peter called him. Or Andrew, excuse me. Just like he knew supernaturally that the woman at the well not only had had five wives, but the man that she was living with now wasn't her husband. Jesus knew Thomas's doubts. And he showed up and met Thomas there in his doubts for one reason. That he might believe. It says that Jesus, after saying, peace be with you, he looks at Thomas and he says, Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. See here, in meeting Thomas in his doubt, Jesus not only graciously, patiently draws near to Thomas, but then He holds out the very evidence of His resurrection. He holds out. He says, this isn't a hallucination. This is a real resurrection it wasn't that just Jesus got knocked out and fell asleep and woke back up. People who just wake back up don't walk through walls, right? Jesus is risen from the dead. And, and it wasn't just that a bunch of people were hallucinating over it. He, raises, he rises from the dead and He comes and He shows His disciples, I'm the one who hung on the tree. Jesus didn't hide His scars from Him and put them behind His back and say, you just got to believe, Thomas. You should have just believed. No, He holds out the evidence of His resurrection. He, he offers Him the very hands that, that, were to, that were held out to prove His resurrection in many ways are the very hands saying to Thomas, come, I will receive you if you believe. So Jesus, as He meets him in His doubt, He holds out evidence of His resurrection, which I think is important here in a moment. Uh, when we see this statement, he says, do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas professes. He answers him with this great confession. We ought to call him confessing Thomas because here's the, the high point of the Gospel of John. My Lord and my God. In fact, this statement is so radical in affirming the deity of Jesus that there are groups in particular like Jehovah Witnesses who deny um, that truth, who will say that he's just saying this almost in a blaspheming way. My Lord and my God, here it is, Jesus. 
It's, it's such a strong statement that if you deny it, uh, you, 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 if you accept it for what it is, it's the greatest confession of Jesus' deity. That He really is God. That He really is Lord. That He really is who He said He was. He's fully God, fully man. My Lord and my God. You don't say that about anyone but God alone. You don't say that about anyone but the one who can forgive sins. You don't say that about anyone but the one who can raise the dead, who can heal the blind, make the lame walk, make the deaf hear. This is Jesus, the promised Messiah, my Lord and my God. It's not a statement of blasphemy, it's a confession of faith. Confession that Jesus alone is Lord and God. Thomas had seen with his eyes. It doesn't tell us if he ever touched his hands or put his hand in his side, Uh, but Uh, Taking it for what it says, it's almost as if having been uh, presented with the evidence, Thomas needed no more and confessed his faith. My Lord and my God. And, And then Jesus says, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You see, Jesus holds out His hands to give evidence of His resurrection, but then He calls Thomas to believe. He He's actually telling Thomas, In many ways, there's a certain level of rebuke in Jesus' statement to him for Thomas not believing. Not because of the presence of doubt, but because Thomas didn't believe his fellow disciples as well as Mary Magdalene. They were telling him that Jesus was risen from the dead, and and Jesus is saying, don't go on disbelieving, but believing. And so... What we see is Jesus isn't angry with our doubts per se, but in fact, He's pointing us to where we should look when we have doubts. When He says, blessed are those who believe without seeing, He's not saying that the nature of faith is a blind leap in the dark. He's not saying that, um, you know, that true faith is, uh, is, is believing in spite of the evidence. That's not what He's saying at all. In fact, the, the reason that we know that is because look at verse 30 through 31 as, uh, as John puts a uh, kind of a purpose statement for the book. After Jesus says, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed, in many ways, John's telling us wh- what that means when he says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which aren't written in this book, but these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. You see, Jesus is pointing us to the eyewitness testimony of the disciples. The the word of the apostles recorded in the Gospels. The testimony of the character and the ways of God in the Old and the New Testament. When He's saying that in our doubt we look to what God has written down for us in His Word. We believe without seeing Jesus but we don't believe in spite of the evidence. We believe because of the evidence presented to us in His Word. He's telling us that it's been written down for us so that we might believe. And I come back to the point I made earlier regarding the reason that this conversation takes place with Thomas as Jesus interacts with His disciples and even Thomas in the specific circumstance we see once more that the gospel is carried forward by the fearful and the doubting. The disciples are afraid, and yet they're the eyewitnesses of Jesus' resurrection. Thomas doubts, and yet he's the eyewitness of the resurrection. It's only after they see Jesus and understand who Jesus is that their fear turns into boldness and that their doubt turns into, into faith. Without the resurrection, Paul would say and. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, we of all people are to be pitied because we're still in our sin. But with the resurrection, with the resurrection, our sins are forgiven. With the resurrection, our joy is full like the disciples. Our hope is secure. In many ways, the honesty about the weakness and the shortcomings of the disciples only proves the credibility of the message that they bear. The Bible doesn't sugarcoat who the disciples are so that we will uh, we'll have greater confidence in what they say. The Bible tells us the gut-level truth about who they are so that we'll know that they didn't make this up and it's not about them. It's actually about an empty tomb outside of Jerusalem and a risen Jesus who appeared to them. And when He rose from the dead, everything changes. 
And when the disciples saw the resurrected Jesus and believed, everything changed for them. And the same is true for us when we come to see Jesus for who He is and confess like Thomas, my Lord and my God. He changes us. And our, fa- our fear moves to boldness. Our doubts move to faith. Not always in an instant. It's often a jagged line of growth in the Christian life. But it's the power of the resurrected Jesus and the giving of the Spirit that changes us. And so in many ways, as we look at uh, Jesus' conversation with Thomas, we see that Jesus' conversation with Thomas is meant to give us confidence in the Gospel. Give us confidence in the message. The message of God's forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ. And, And then in turn, not only does it give us confidence in the Gospel, but it compels us to persevere in God's mission. Because this is the message that He's given us. That's why Jesus says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. It's not because we believe in spite of evidence, but on the foundation of eyewitness testimonies like the disciples, we believe. In fact, 1 Peter 1, 8-9, Peter will say, though we have not seen Him, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. See, Jesus draws near to Thomas in his doubt, offers him evidence of his resurrection, and then calls him to believe. And in calling Thomas to believe, and in Thomas's confession, we have great confidence in the truthfulness of the gospel, as well as an encouragement to persevere in God's mission. And so as we step back from seeing Jesus' interaction with, with the disciples and with Thomas, I want to I conclude by, by just thinking about how we deal with doubt and what we can learn uh, from Jesus' interaction with Thomas. There's a whole host of things that we, we may doubt. And some of this may <clears throat> be true as a believer. You have lingering doubts about these questions, or some of these may be true if you're not yet a follower of Christ, or you have friends who aren't followers of Christ. These often are some of the things that we doubt. We doubt that God really created the world. We can doubt that God, if there is one, could allow so much suffering to exist in the world. We doubt that if there's a God, that He's really in control of all things, especially my life. We sometimes doubt that God could send good people to hell. We even doubt if hell is really real. We can have doubts about why there are so many religions, and if one religion, just one, can really be the true one. Sometimes we've gone through stuff at the hands of professing Christians and we think to ourselves, I can't get on board with Christianity if the people who represent Christianity have done these things either in the past or in the present. We can think that Christianity is an oppressive religion, that it's at odds with science, that it's a killjoy. It it keeps us from doing stuff that we like, that we enjoy. Christianity, in some people's minds, it says don't do these things, and everything within us says, well, I want to do those things. So I can't get on board with a religion that tells me I can't uh, sleep with who I want to sleep with and, um, and, and do what I think is right and, uh, and, and go about my life according to, to how I see fit. How are you telling me that, that, that that's what's true? People think Christianity is on the wrong side of history when it comes to, uh, to issues, rightfully so, on issues of slavery or issues of women's rights or homosexuality. I can't get on board with the, with the religion, with the faith that um, has, has that track record. Some people look at the Bible and say, how is the Bible true? Can I really trust it? It was you know, over 1,500 years, 40-something different authors, 66 different books. How can I really believe that it's true and trustworthy? Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Honestly, sometimes as believers, doubt can creep in because we've been following God, but life isn't what we had hoped. John the Baptist was quick to proclaim that Jesus was the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. And then when he was in prison facing the end of his life, he sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you really the one? Sometimes when life isn't going the way that we want, we face disappointment and discouragement. We can be tempted to doubt God's goodness. His wisdom, His power. You might be thinking, Michael, I wasn't doubting any of those things before you said them. All of these things can be doubts, right? And we can wrestle with these things. 
And my first encouragement as we think about dealing with doubt is to not run from doubt. There's not many other authors or pastors that I think have spoken on this topic as clearly or as helpfully as Tim Keller, but, uh, but he says faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. If you go by just too busy in life or indifferent to ask hard questions about what you believe, then likely what you believe will crumble in an instant. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she's failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after reflection. We, we need to acknowledge and wrestle with our doubts, whatever they may be. <clears throat> and not only our own, but those of our friends and our neighbors. We, we know that our faith can't be our parents' faith or our grandparents' faith. In the same way, we can't just believe because somebody else told us. We, we struggle with the objections of our faith so that we can provide grounds for what we believe and why we believe when we go through the difficulties and the trials or when we face these things that we're grounded in what we believe. And in many ways, not running from your doubts, but instead engaging them, thinking through them, going to God's Word and looking at them is actually part of the process that strengthens our faith. That's part of the process that draws us closer to God and then actually helps us to understand and even respect and be able to communicate with those who do have doubts when we haven't run from our own. So we, we can't run from our doubts, whatever they may be. <clears throat> but also, there's an encouragement, not only that those who have faith have some doubts that we shouldn't run from, but we ought to have a little bit of skepticism of ourselves, and, and we should doubt our doubts. So don't run from your doubts, but also we should doubt our doubts. And, and <clears throat> once more, Keller says it this way, he says, the only way to doubt Christianity rightly and fairly is to discern the alternate beliefs underneath your reasons for doubting. So, so another way, in other words, <clears throat> if I say that I don't believe belief A, that Jesus has risen from the dead, then that means I do believe belief B, that people don't rise from the dead. Or if I say that I know that there can't just be one religion that's true, that Jesus can't be the only way to salvation, what I do believe is universalism, that everybody gets there the same way. And what reasons do you have for that? What reasons do you have for belief B if you reject belief A? We, we all should, we should understand when we reject something that there's some other belief underneath our rejection. So how do you know that that belief, that belief B, is true? And he says it this way, it would be inconsistent. Take this as an encouragement as you talk with other people. I'm not, this isn't about being antagonistic and confrontational, but ask a person this question. When you're talking to someone who doesn't believe, why do you believe what you believe? We, we, we often think as Christians that we, and rightfully so, that we should give an answer for what we believe, but sometimes we feel like we're always on defense. But sometimes it's just as simple as saying, well, why do you believe what you believe? What grounds do you have for believing what you believe? And he says it would be inconsistent require, to require more justification for Christian belief than you do for your own. But that's frequently what happens. In fairness, we must doubt our doubts. He says, my thesis is that you come to recognize beliefs on which your doubts about Christianity, Christianity are based, and then if you seek as much proof for those beliefs as you seek from Christians for theirs, that you will discover that your doubts are not as solid as they first appeared. That's not, a, that's not an arrogant statement of saying that you'll come to my conclusion in the end. Uh, but it's saying that we ought to, we ought to not just reject something uh, and then be confident in why we reject it, but we also ought to ask ourselves, why am I rejecting it? Why do I find it so offensive that there's only one way? Why do I find it offensive that Jesus said those things and yet I think that it's okay for everybody to do these things? What are the reasons for uh, <clears throat> our rejection of those things? So don't run from your doubt, but also doubt your doubts. And John 20 really reminds us, I think sometimes as we look at Christianity, the landscape of Christianity today, sometimes the, if, if you look at you know, the popular presentations of Christianity and some of the uh, kind of self-help type Christian books in the bookstore, you know, online on Amazon or whatever the case may be, uh, or you hear the uh, kind of the, uh, the versions of Christianity that are applauded uh, in our culture, it basically 
uh, is a message that Jesus is a universalist and that he mostly cares about uh, justice and loving everyone, which there's some truth mixed in there, right? But uh, also some error mixed in that Jesus is just this kind of universalist who wants everybody to love each other and get along with each other. That's kind of the version sometimes of Christianity that's presented as acceptable in our culture. And John 20, when you look at it, it doesn't say anything like that. And in fact, it's interesting that as the gospel actually first spread, it didn't spread amongst the cultural elite. It actually spread amongst the poor and the slaves and women and, uh, and those who are on the margins of society. Not because the, the disciples went about proclaiming a message of, hey, love everyone and get along. No, they went about proclaiming a message that Jesus is risen, that death is defeated, that sin is defeated, that guilt and shame are gone. You see, the, the truth that the disciples proclaim isn't just a, um, another version of pro- progressive secular moralism uh, that's acceptable in our culture. It's radically different. It has to do with a, a real man named Jesus who professed to be God, who died on the cross as a sacrifice, a substitute, and who really rose from the dead. And when people get up out of the tomb, that means that we listen to them. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again. Jesus rose from the dead and he lives forever. And because he lives forever, everything he said and did, we ought to listen to. And then finally, an encouragement, we conclude with this, is to look to Jesus in our doubt. First, his word. You see, that's the whole point, I think, in many ways of what Jesus is doing here. He's calling the disciples and they're the eyewitnesses They saw, they were with Jesus, they saw His death, they saw His resurrection, and it's upon their testimony that we have the record of of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And that's recorded in God's Word, and John wrote it down that we might believe. And in 1 John, he said something similar when he says, "...from the beginning, what we have heard and what we have seen with our eyes, looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the Word of life, Jesus." The life was made manifest and we saw it and we testify and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made known to us which we have seen and heard we proclaim to you so that you may have fellowship with us and fellowship with the Father and with His Son Jesus Christ. He's saying the same thing there at the beginning of 1 John. It's, we're telling you what we saw, what we touched. It's recorded here in the Word. First, Second Peter, just write this down. 1, 16-21. Peter basically says, hey, I was with Jesus when, I, when He was transformed on the Mount of Transfiguration. I saw the glory of the Lord. He says, I want you to know that I have something even better than hearing the voice of God from heaven. What's better and more sure than hearing the voice of God from heaven is hearing the voice of God in the written Word of God that was given to men carried along by the Holy Spirit. By meeting Thomas in his doubt, Jesus proves the source, provides the source that will lead us to faith. It's the Word of God. I'm not saying that if you have doubts that you'll you'll automatically just have them answered as you read a passage. It's not like, here's a doubt and here's a Bible verse for your doubt. You got this doubt? Well, here's a Bible verse for that doubt. There are some things in which we can point to, to, to real uh, texts that help us, but the point is wrestle with God's Word. It's given to us, not so that we can believe in spite of evidence, but because we can believe because of evidence, eyewitness evidence of who Jesus is and what He said and did. So we have His Word that we can look to, but we also have His patience. I pointed out earlier how Jesus told His disciples how He had how he was going to die, how he's going to rise from the dead, all of these things. He could have showed up and scolded them. He could have showed up and flipped the tables on them and demeaned them for not believing. How dumb do you have to be? I told you this how many times now? Didn't you listen? Not the first time, the second time, the third time? Like, weren't you listening to me? That reveals kind of my own heart of what I would do, but it's not the heart of Jesus the patience with which He draws near to them and reveals Himself and called them to believe. What comfort there is in knowing He's patient with us in our doubts and calls us to be patient with those who doubt themselves. We have His Word. We have His patience. And then finally, the center of this whole interaction that Jesus has with His disciples and with Thomas. We have His wounds. We have His wounds which speak to us 
of how God deals with us in our doubt. That He draws near and reveals Himself. He makes Himself known. As I was studying this week, I came across a poem by a free church minister in England during World War I, Edward Shalito, who upon walking through the horror of World War I, wrote this poem reflecting on Jesus' resurrection appearance here in John 20 and, and kind of the, just the horror of what so many experienced and saw. I put it on the screen for us to conclude with. <clears throat> Pastor Shalito said, If we have never sought, we seek thee now. Thine eyes burn through the dark, our only stars. We must have sight of thorn pricks on thy brow. We must have thee, O Jesus, of the scars. The heavens frighten us. They are too calm. In all the universe, we have no place. Our wounds are hurting us. Where is the balm? Lord Jesus, by thy scars we claim thy grace. If when the doors are shut, thou draw us near, only reveal those hands, that side of thine. We know today what wounds are. Have no fear. Show us thy scars. We know the countersign. And this last verse is what ministered my own soul this week. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. See, I, I think as we wrestle with our doubt and we, we look to His Word and we understand His patience, we, we have the, the enduring testimony of a Savior with wounds who draws near to us in all of our doubts and invites us into Himself and the consideration of who He is and what He said. And I think the proof that the world needs, that our community needs, the proof that, that we need is found in Jesus' scars. The other gods were strong, but Jesus was weak. The other gods rode in victory. Jesus stumbled under the weight of His cross on the way to His throne. We struggle to believe because of the scars that we bear and the, and the burdens and, 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 and doubts that we carry. John 20 says that Jesus knows. No other God has wounds but Jesus alone. And, and here's, here's the, the concluding encouragement to us. The scars of Jesus were held before Thomas so that he might believe. Jesus held out his hands, pointed out his side, so that Thomas might believe. Do you know those same scars have been written down in God's Word? And now the scars of Jesus written down for us in the Bible by the very eyewitnesses of the disciples and doubting Thomas himself are now held before us so that we might believe. And in believing, have life in His name. So I say all this to say we all struggle with doubt in one way or another. We don't have to hide in shame. We don't have to elevate our doubt as if it makes us better than anyone else. Jesus says, bring your doubt to me. Don't run from it. Doubt your doubts, but ultimately look to Jesus. His Word that's true. His patience that we can barely wrap our minds around. And His wounds that are held out for us. And just like He said to Thomas, Jesus says to us, don't go on disbelieving, but believe. Let's pray.